No, it's okay. Uh, let me get this on first before I blow you up here. All right, so we're going to talk, start talking about some chemotherapy. So anyone have oncology experience or done oncology? Okay, so be nice to me. Don't ask any hard questions, okay? Uh, let's see. Light's good for you guys or you want to go? Because cancer is sort of a sort of totally different ballgame. It's not one disease per se, and we're we're not really going to talk about the drugs in terms of the context of the diseases they treat, just because I tried that once and it didn't work out too well. All right, so we're just going to talk about um, general concepts about chemotherapy, some mechanism of action, mainly focusing on side effects and labs you might need to follow. Um, because when you take care of a patient, you probably don't care all that much about the mechanism of action. So this is me, that's my email. I do write my own test questions, okay? Um, so if you have questions, and other than is this gonna be on the exam, you can email me. Um, give me time, I probably don't get to my emails till later in the evening, okay? Um, so give me a little bit of time, don't email me the, the morning of the, the exam because you probably won't get an answer. And in fact, I think I'm on vacation the week of the exam. Paul and I were just talking about that. So if you have questions, try and get to me early. Um, as you notice, there are a bunch of slides. I think 170, but that's okay. So as far as I know, it's ever flunked based on this material, all right? So again, focus on what we talk about in class. There may be some slides that have some extra material. If I don't focus on it in class, I'm not gonna ask you about it on the exam, okay? The stuff is there, so if you get out and you're lucky enough to get an oncology rotation, you might have something to go back to and look for some information. Um, so we talked a little bit about that. Um, the one website I threw up there is, now that you're all going into um, medical field, if you haven't already been in a previous incarnation part of uh, the medical field, you're gonna start getting questions from every family member you have or friends whatever, about this, that, and the other thing. So this website is uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN. It actually has some great guidelines for both the public and for healthcare professionals. It's free, yet you just have to sort of register, uh, but you go on and it has treatment algorithms, it has explanations of stuff. It's actually a, a good website for stuff. And again, if you're on rotation, you wanna look something up, this is a good place to start. All right, if we talk about, um, Oncology and cancer, um, again, a, a typical uh, cancer where it's, um, you know, say a colon cancer or whatever, um, has some characteristics about it in terms of how it grows, and it's been described by this curve called the Persian growth curve. And basically what we're saying is, if you look at the growth curve here, in the early part of growth, there's this high growth fraction, short doubling time, so the tumor sort of really going to town, growing pretty fast. As it gets bigger and bigger, it starts to slow down a little bit and it sort of plateaus up. Part of that is because its host is getting sicker and sicker. 
as the tumor gets bigger and bigger, it needs to get a good blood supply in, it needs oxygen, nutrition, all that stuff. And if it's outgrowing its blood supply, it might not be able to get all that stuff. So as it gets bigger and bigger, it, the growth may slow down a bit. Why is this important? Well, really the, the key is when it's in this early phase, chemotherapy and really conventional chemotherapy works best on this rapidly growing, high growth rate, short doubling time. Um, you know, we always say chemo works on rapidly dividing cells, okay? And that's sort of conventional chemotherapy, which we're going to focus on today. Next week, we're going to talk about more of some of the newer treatments um, that are more targeted therapies. All right, so this area of the curve is important. The problem is, when can you really detect a tumor? You know, it, meaning when can you palpate it? When is it going to uh, present some symptoms in the patient that would lead you to find it? And that's really when you're up in this part of the curve. Okay, which all of a sudden you see a problem here, right? If we can't detect it early enough, our chemo isn't going to be as effective up here, all right? Um, so key is early detection, as you know, and you learn about when you do your oncology lectures. Um, the other important thing, so key is try and get it as early as possible. Chemo is going to work best when it's in this high growth phase. The other thing that's important is once you get down below about 10 to the 5th cells, the immune system starts to um, maybe kick in a little bit and maybe more beneficial in treating the patient. All right, so again, we'll talk about drugs next week where we're trying to manipulate the immune systems to start doing this job again and recognizing the cancers. Um, so those are really the important things about this graph. Uh, let's see. Alright, so there are a bunch of hypotheses about how chemotherapy works. Um, one of the first ones is this log-kill hypothesis, and that really, um, key is it's, it assumes the doubling time of the tumor is constant, regardless of the tumor size. So I just contradicted what I said. Welcome to oncology. Um, but really, the, the, the real key, and I don't know that I have a wrong button, sorry. Um, <coughs> The, the key is that the growth, that the fraction of cells killed with each cycle of chemotherapy is constant. All right, that's really the key point. So if you have a tumor that's a thousand cells big, you give chemotherapy, you kill 90% of that tumor. All right, so you then you go down to 100 cells. You give another round of chemotherapy, and you kill another 90%. So then you're down to 10 cells. Right. <laughs> That's how chemo is thought to work. It's killing a constant percentage of cells with each round of chemotherapy. The problem is that assumes that the, the, the cancer is homogeneously sensitive to the chemotherapy. Unfortunately, we know that's not always true. And the other thing about chemo is we can't constantly give a patient chemo. Because if you do, you kill the patient. And you probably learned in one of your first classes killing patients is bad, right? <laughs> Good, we got that from that. All right, so what we have to do with chemotherapy, we have to give it in, in what we call cycles, all right? So in this example, our tumor is around 10 to the 10th cells big, right? We give a round of chemo. We get about a three log cell kill, okay? And then we have to give the, the patient a period of time for the normal tissues to recover from the effects of the chemotherapy. Because really, chemotherapy, conventional chemotherapy, is pretty stupid. 
it a lot of times can't differentiate tumor from regu regular cells, okay? So there's some toxicity to the normal cells. So you need a recovery period. So during that recovery period, you get a little bit of, of uh, cell regrowth, all right? So then you give another round of chemotherapy, you get another three log cell kill, but you have to wait, so you get another bit of regrowth. So based on this, you're really never gonna get down to an absolute zero, right? So a lot of times, um, our first mode of treatment is to do surgery of something small enough, you cut it out and then you mop up after it, right? Because based on this, um, this graph, you're never gonna get down to an absolute zero. So the other thing that we have to think about is while the normal tissues are recovering from the effects of chemotherapy, the cancer cells are also recovering. And cancer cells are pretty smart. They can actually become resistant to the chemotherapy too. So we have this other hypothesis called the Goldie-Fulman hypothesis. And this says that basically the best way to attack a tumor is sort of different mechanisms of action, start early, combinations of drugs to try and avoid tumor resistance. Okay, so often what you'll see is in folks um, getting chemo, it's not a single drug. A lot of times it's regimens of drugs. And, and that's really why you want to prevent resistance. You want to really attack the tumor from different sides. So if we talk about what type of treatment modalities we have, um, again, when you're out there and you start reading charts, we have single agent, we have sequential, so patients may get two drug combinations finish with that and then go on and get another drug. We can have radiation plus chemotherapy together. We can have immunotherapy, hormonal therapy, so a bunch of different things out there. Um, and really when we do combinations of chemotherapy, um, a couple of things we need to think about. We definitely want agents with individual activity against the tumor type, okay? Most of the time we want differing mechanisms of actions. There are a couple of instances where you may have a couple of drugs that are the same mechanism, but you do still get benefit from combining them. Obviously you want to avoid overlapping toxicity, so don't give two drugs with cardiotoxicity. And if there are synergistic um, interactions, you know, take advantage of that, and we'll talk about examples of that. Alright, so I said chemo is given in cycles. And a cycle is defined by the combinations of drug that you use, okay? So there's not one standard cycle length. So chemo cycles can be 21 days long, 14 days, 35 days, 28. So it really depends on the regimen that's being given and the drugs that are being combined. So in this example, the cycle is 21 days long, okay? On days one, two, and three, the person gets chemotherapy. Then days 4 to 21 is that recovery period, okay? Patient comes back on the 22nd day. If you check the labs, everything's okay, you're going to get more chemotherapy, that becomes cycle 2, all right? So if we now add some drugs in there, so this is sort of an old lung regimen. In this case, we're given two drugs on day 1. And then the one drug on days two and three, we have our recovery period, and then we go through the whole dance again. All right? So you read in the chart, the patient got cisplatin and topicide for six cycles. They did this six times, all right? Every 21 days or six times. So it's really going to depend on what regimen they got um, to determine what the, the cycle length was. 
All right, when we talk about um, types of therapy, we give different names to what we're doing with the chemotherapy in terms of what's happening with the patient. So to think about cancer very, very broadly, you can think about liquid tumors and solid tumors. So liquids are the leukemias, basically, and the solid tumors are pretty much everything else. So breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. So the liquid tumors, if we look at those first, again, they're in the bloodstream, so it's not in one location. So you can't do any surgery for leukemia, right? Um, so the first chemotherapy that you give is called induction chemotherapy. And the goal of induction chemotherapy is once you've done treatment with your induction chemo, the patient recovers from all the effects, that you go and you look and there's no evidence of tumor, no evidence of that leukemia around again, okay? So that's induction chemo. So if we treat someone with a, uh, an acute myeloid leukemia, we give them induction chemotherapy. If we do nothing else, we know that 99% of those patients are going to relapse. All right. So we know there is micrometastatic disease, or some the newest term out there is minimal residual disease. So there may be one or two leukemia cells floating around. We're not able to detect them very well. But we know if we don't give them more treatment, they're going to relapse. So we give what's called consolidation chemotherapy. And that consolidation chemo sort of mops up and gets rid of whatever remaining leukemia is. Okay? The other type of um, chemo that we give uh, for leukemia is mainly, and really one specific type of leukemia, ALL, you don't need to know that for the exam, but it's called maintenance uh, chemotherapy. So that's um, a, a long course of chemotherapy over you know, like a year and a half to keep the disease under control and keep it from coming back. So really, uh, maintenance has been shown to be effective in, effective in acute lymphocytic leukemia. And we don't really use it. Uh, there's some maintenance going on now in um, lymphoma, lymphomas and myelomas, but really ALL is the place where you see maintenance chemotherapy. All right. So again, that's what you're see, You're going to see for the leukemias, and again, if you pull up a chart, you're going to see the patient receives induction chemotherapy with seven and three, and then um, uh, then receives you know three cycles of consolidation um, with blank. Uh, so that's what you see. Um, okay. So on the solid tumor side, so don't do this when you're in practice. Don't look at things and say, yeah, I'm not going to answer it now. Okay. But, so on the solid tumor side, um, it's a little bit different. So uh, a woman who has a breast cancer, it's a, it's a small tumor, less than two uh, centimeters. She comes in, uh, they do surgery. They take out the, the tumor. We know there's a risk for recurrence, again, because of micro-metastatic disease. So there may be a couple of breast cancer cells around that we can't detect, even though it looked like everything was taken out. So we get what's called adjuvant chemotherapy. So adjuvant is to mop up, right? Get rid of that little micrometastatic disease. Um, so in the same waiting room is another woman who has a breast cancer that's six, I don't know, let's make it five centimeters. She's a little bit smaller. They really can't do surgery because the surgery would be too disfiguring. The surgeon doesn't think he can get negative margins. So he can't get everything out. So we might give what's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So neoadjuvant shrinks down the tumor so that then you can go on and do surgery afterwards. Okay? So neoadjuvant isn't used in too many tumor types. 
Um, breast is probably one of the biggest. You see it in lung cancer every once in a while, um, rarely in colon cancer, but breast is probably where you see it most often. And then in terms, um, in some patients where we know we're not going to cure them, they have stage four disease, so they have a metastatic disease all over, but we think giving some chemotherapy will improve their, um, their symptoms and improve their quality of life, we'll give palliative chemotherapy. Okay, so those are the different terms that you might see in the chart when you pick up a patient um, who, who has cancer or who had cancer. In terms of responses to chemotherapy and how well they've done, there are different response criteria. So we look at both objective and subjective um, response criteria. If we look at the objective, complete response is um, defined as disappearance of all evidence of tumor after a definitive treatment. Okay? So complete response does not equal cure. Alright? So it's you have a patient with lymphoma, you're giving six cycles of RCHOP. When you've done that treatment after those six cycles, you then go and look and see if there's any more lymphoma. The patient doesn't have any more lymphoma, they're in a CR. Okay, so there's no evidence of their disease anymore. They're not cured yet because they need to make it up five years without that lymphoma coming back before they're cured. Okay, so that's a complete response. A partial response. Um, is a decrease of at least 50% of, of the of measurable lesion. So if it's a person with um, lung cancer and has a couple of spots in his lung and they both decrease by about 75%, but it's still there after your definitive treatment, that's a partial response or, okay? Um, stable disease is if you have a little bit of response in some lesions, but a little bit of growth in others, all right? So you're sort of hanging out there. And then progressive disease is if it's growing. All right, so depending on what disease you're, you're, you're looking at, um, the definitions, you have to go to that little method section in the papers that are really small that you need to read because it's boring, right? But you have to read that stuff and figure out what they define as a response, okay? Um, and then oncology is one of the few places where we've actually approved a couple of drugs based on more subjective. Was that weird? Did someone just see a flash or am I hallucinating? Okay, good. If I go down, go home. <laughs> so, um, subjective response criteria is things like symptom control. So does the patient need to use as much pain medicine all the time? Um, are they um, are their pain scores better? Can they do their ADLs? Is their quality of life better? So we have a couple of drugs that are approved based on. These uh, parameters not so much as extending their lives for, for months or years. Alright, so how do you know who's going to respond well to chemo or not? So a bunch of things there. Um, so probably number one and two go together. So their diagnosis, the type of cancer they have, and really the stage of cancer, the grade of the tumor. So basically how, how far advanced it is. Okay, and we're not going to get into the specifics of that. Um, and then in terms of tumor burden, tumor cell heterogeneity, so we know in certain um, diseases if there's a large tumor burden, so there are more risk for complications. If they have like an elderly patient, this 80-year-old who gets leukemia, we know that 
leukemia is a lot more resistant to chemotherapy than if a, you know, a six-month-old gets ALL. We know we have like a 95% cure rate in those, in those kids. Um, so drug resistance, we don't really have good clinical tests right now to, to really say this drug, this, um, this tumor is resistant to drugs, or although the field is moving that way, you'll see ads in the papers and on the radio every once in a while about you know, doing uh, typing of patients' tumors to know what drug might be best for their tumor type, and that's one of the things that's been in the field for the past uh, five or 10 years, really moving towards that type of thing. Um, the dose and schedule of chemotherapy is important, so remember we said we have cycles. If you can keep the patients on schedule, so when that next cycle comes up, if everything's okay, they can start their chemo on time without any dose reductions, those patients, or most instances, are going to do better than if you have to delay and dose reduce. Um, so that's really been shown in things like breast cancer and lymphoma. It's really important to keep them on schedule and keep the full doses going. Um, the other thing is patient-specific factors, so PS stands for performance status. So really how, how well the patient is starting off. So again, an 18-year-old with Hodgkin's disease who needs chemotherapy versus an 80-year-old with cardiac disease, reduced renal function, um, who's going to do better getting this toxic stuff that we're giving them? The younger patient is than the older patient, okay? Um, so age, performance status, um, genetics, um, again, there are certain uh, diseases where that has a genetic component. Uh, so patients with Marfan disease, they're predisposed to getting leukemia, and they don't handle certain types of chemotherapy as well as regular patients, so patients with elder disease, I shouldn't say regular. Um, so again, some of that stuff's out there. Um, it's just something to think about when you take care of the patients. All right, so you don't have my cartoons. It gives me a chance to drink. Um, you should know oncologists all have very warped senses of humor because of what we do every day. At least that's no excuse. Um, all right. So if anyone was offended, I apologize in advance for my cartoons. But. All right. So I actually got that on an um, evaluation once that I was more yeah. I was more concerned with uh, my cartoons than with my lecture. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good year. That was a banner year. I had a good year that year. <laughs> Alright, so now we talk about um, some general toxicities uh, of chemotherapy. Um, so one of the first things you think of is nausea vomiting. So in fact, there were studies done in um, late 80s, early 90s, early 90s, where they went to patients with a new diagnosis of cancer or they never get chemo. And they asked, what are you most afraid of in getting chemo? And uh, number one, two, and three were always in no particular order, nausea, vomiting, and alopecia. All right, so they did that one year, and like four years later, they did the same study and the same thing. I think the, the, the numbers switched up in how they were ranked, but basically those are the top three concerns. Um, so definitely nausea vomiting is an issue. Um, the pathophysiology is somewhat understood, although not fully understood, especially for um, nausea vomiting, we're, we're a little bit better at and know a little bit more. But basically we have this thing called the vomiting center in the medulla. Okay? The vomiting center receives input from four different areas. The first one is the GI tract. Okay? 
So we know that chemo can affect, uh, I don't know what my problem is, affect the enterochromaffin cells that line the GI tract. When the chemo attacks those cells, they release serotonin, and that um, is then sensed by the vomiting center, can start the process of, of vomiting. All right, so then you have uh, um, signals sent out to the muscles of the diaphragm and all the other stuff that goes along with vomiting. Um, the other place that um, can, can send signals is the vestibular apparatus. Um, so remember the vestibular apparatus um, is important in motion sickness and such. Uh, so patients who have a history of motion sickness do much worse or do worse in terms of nausea and vomiting when they get chemotherapy, then your patient doesn't have that um, history. Uh, the neurotransmitter involved is not 100% clear. It could be acetylcholine. You don't really know which uh, neurotransmitter per se. The cerebral cortex, we have no idea what goes on up there, right? But think about it. If, if you're told you need to go do a talk in front of 1,000 people tomorrow, would you get a little queasy thinking about it? Right? So there's some anxiety, some component uh, going on. And we have a couple of meds. So we think a couple of things, substance P um, and GABA may be involved um, in, in that. And then finally, we have the, um, the chemoreceptor trigger zone. That lies in the fourth ventricle, gets input from the CSF and also from the bloodstream. And again, just sort of gathers all this these neurotransmitters and sends it down to the vomiting center. Um, so the key with nausea vomiting in oncology is to stop it before it even starts. So really it's prophylactic medication. And our medications are aimed at blocking these different neurotransmitters. Okay, so often you'll see combinations of drugs given to patients uh, to block these different neurotransmitters. Um, and we don't have time to go through how we decide which regimens to give. So there, there are all these, um, there's a ranking system for chemotherapy. We can say this chemo is really likely to cause uh, nausea vomiting, whereas this one is not gonna cause nausea vomiting. Uh, so we can't go through all those details. But one of the other things we do have is three types of nausea vomiting that can occur with chemotherapy. Um, the most common is called acute. It occurs within the first 24 hours of the patient getting the chemotherapy. Typically, it peaks around 46 hours after the start of the infusion. All right, so the patient's sitting in the infusion center, the chemo's running in, you know, a couple hours into it, they start to get a little nauseous and they have to, you know, they ask for the bucket. All right, so we're actually very good at, at prophylaxing against acute nausea and vomiting. All right, so the drugs that we use are listed here. We're going to talk about the individual drugs in a sec, but the serotonin antagonist, an NK1 antagonist, or corticosteroid. Okay, so acute within that first 24 hours, we're good at controlling acute. Delayed nausea vomiting occurs anytime after that first 24 hours. Can last up to five days. So the patient got their chemo five days ago, but they still have nausea vomiting. It's really associated with specific drugs. The three drugs are listed there for you. So cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and cisplatin. The key is if a patient gets one of these three drugs, you need to keep them on around the clock antiemetics for that three to five day period to really cover them, okay? 
And again, we're using the same combinations of drugs for steroids and they one antagonist. Palinozotron is a long-acting serotonin antagonist. We're going to talk about it in a sec. But you need to know these three drugs and that they can cause this delayed nausea volume. Question? Yeah, so when you're treating or prophylactically treating the acute, do you, can you use one of them or do you have to combination? So the question is when you're, when you're um, prophylaxing for acute nausea volume, do you have to use three drugs or do you, can you use just one? And it really depends on what the regimen is. <coughs> Okay, so if it's um, something that we consider moderately immunogenic, we're probably going to use two. If it's something that we think is highly, we're going to use three. Um, so again, I, we're not going to get into that detail for the exam because there's no way I, I'd be lucky if my fellows know that. Okay, so I expect you guys to have to know that. Um, and, and this could be a point where we talk about uh, real world and exam world. Okay, in exam world, there's a correct answer. There's a black and white. And I will try and make it such that the, the questions are not ambiguous. So again, if you see someone getting a regimen that has cisplatin in it, cisplatin is going to be like, put a big star next to it. It causes the most nausea and vomiting. It's a terrible drug. Those patients need to be on delayed antimedics. They need to get these three drugs as prophylaxis, okay? So it should be black and white in the exam. I get very choked up when I talk about it. Um, you didn't hear my voice correctly. In terms of real world, you need to understand that what we do at Tufts might not be what they do at Dan Farber or at Mass General or whatever, so there's a little bit more leeway in terms of what individual practitioners will do in terms of, of their combinations and how they treat nausea and vomiting. The last type is called anticipatory nausea and vomiting, and this occurs before the patient even gets treated. Okay, so it's, it's a conditioned response, it's a pavlovian response. So it could be a patient who got their first round of chemotherapy, had terrible nausea and vomiting, so the next time they're scared to come back, you know, they start thinking about it, and before they even get here, they start throwing up. Okay? Or maybe someone who's so nervous beforehand that they make themselves, you know, nauseous before they even get here. Um, so really what we use to treat anticipatory nausea and vomiting is a benzodiazepine. Alright, so if we look at the specific drugs, again, um, the two, so if we look at the serotonin antagonists, so we use these drugs for both acute and delayed nausea and vomiting. There are two drugs I want you to know out of the four listed there. Ondansetron or Zofran, everyone's heard of that drug, right? It's like water. Uh, versus palinozotron, you probably haven't heard a lot about. The real difference between the two is that palinozotron has a really long half-life. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself in my slides here. Um, so those are the serotonin antagonists. We're going to talk in a little more detail in a sec. Um, so you need to know on dancetron, palinostron. The NK1 antagonist is used for both acute and delayed nausea and vomiting. The one you need to know for the exam is the prepotent. Okay. Um, the corticosteroids are used for both acute and delayed, and really the drug is dexamethasone. Um, so those are the three sort of um, backbones of our regimens uh, for prophylaxis. And then what happens if your patients get these and then they throw up? What are you going to do? Just say, oops, sorry, here's your bucket. No, you have to have some stuff for sort of breakthrough nausea and vomiting. So then we can use the, the uh, dopamine antagonists, so things like Compazine or Reglan, so we use them for PRN. Again, the benzodiazepines, really uh, lorazepam or Ativan is a drug we talk about most. Um, and 
one of the newest drugs out there that you may see um, not, is olanzapine. This is an atypical um, antidepressant, antipsychotic type drug. It's sort of one of the newest things. It does have some antiemetic um, properties to it. Um, so you start, we're starting to use that more and more. It's been incorporated into some of the uh, nausea vomiting guidelines. All right, so we talk about specifics about these drugs now. So the serotonin antagonists um, bind serotonin at the type 3 receptor in the GI tract and the chemoreceptor trigger zone. As I said, it's used for both acute and delay that I want you to know about on Dacitron. Um, really uh, pretty well tolerated. The major, oh, we're going to get to the major side, sorry. So on Dacitron, short acting, both acute and delay, but Right in your notes, I really want you to use ondansetron for acute nausea vomiting, okay? Calinozotron also works at the serotonin type 3 receptor. Same mechanism per se. The one big difference is it has a very long half-life. The half-life is about 40 hours. So if you imagine you give one dose, it lasts for three to five days. So it's going to cover both acute and delayed nausea vomiting. All right, so put a note here, acute and delayed for palinozotron. So now if you have a patient who got one of those three drugs that causes delayed nausea and vomiting, in the exam world, they're automatically going to get palinozotron because it's going to last for that three to five days with one shot. You don't have to worry about compliance. You don't have to worry about patients picking up prescriptions, paying co-pays and such, okay? Make sense? All right. So that's your 5-HT3. Uh, the major toxicities, headaches, the number one thing that was seen in clinical trials. Um, so patients can get headaches. Usually Tylenol will take care of it. Every once in a while we had a patient who was getting um, a high dose regimen for leukemia. Uh, as you can tell, I ran on the hematology service, so that's all my stories. But, um, so he was getting uh, his chemo, but he didn't like the headache he was getting from his 5-HT3 antagonist. So he's like, I don't want it, I don't want it. We're like, no, you really should take it. He refused to take it. The next day he was puking guts out. He was, he was um, uh, begging for his 5-HG3 uh, antagonist. We ended up having to use morphine to treat his headache, which I don't suggest you do. But um, it really, these drugs are very effective. And, um, and headache can occur. Hiccups is the other thing that can occur. Probably, it's, there's not a lot you can do about hiccups, even though there are a bunch of things, you know, drinking out of a cup backwards or something, or holding your nose, or crazy stuff, you know, people have tried all different drugs, really nothing helps, a lot of times it has to do with irritation of the diaphragm, um, and once the drug is gone and the chemo is finished, it, it usually resolves itself. This drug as a class does um, affect the QTC and can cause QTC prolongation. Typically it's at really high doses, and um, when you're bored later and you want to read all about ondansetron and it's dosing and the studies, you'll find that originally we used much higher doses than we use nowadays. So it's really less of an issue unless a patient has uh, known QTC prolongation. It's okay to use this drug in patients with cardiovascular disease, this, that, the other thing. You're not going to run into trouble. It's really only those patients who have a known QTC prolongation. And then constipation is the other thing that can occur. Um, you, you can just treat that symptomatically. All right, so those are the serotonin antagonists. Um, 
So the next class of drug are, are the NK1 antagonists. So the drug is a preptin. It blocks the action of substance P at the neurokinin 1 receptor. Uh, so it works peripherally and centrally. Uh, this drug, uh, there's actually an IV formulation of it that will, again, like a loxy cover for three to five days. So, and this was initially approved for patients getting cisplatin. So again, in the exam world, if you see a, a regimen that contains cisplatin, automatically they're getting a prepotent and a loxy as their antibiotics. Okay. Um, so it, it, you know, has a long uh, half-life and it's good for both acute and delayed nausea and vomiting. It does have drug interactions. Uh, the biggest one is it does decrease the clearance of dexamethasone. Um, so you can have increased dexamethasone levels, so that you need to do some dose adjustments. Will not be on the exam, just so you know, there are a lot of drug interactions with the preptin, but we still uh, use a fair amount of it. It can also cause hip hiccups, fatigue, but otherwise pretty well tolerated. So a preptin, <coughs> those patients getting acute, who are at risk for acute and delayed nausea vomiting, okay, definitely use it with paloxy, okay? Um, so the dopamine antagonists, again, bind dopamine at D1 and D2 receptors. Uh, multiple dopamine antagonists out there. Um, you probably all have heard of composite, right? So again, these, we think of these as PRN drugs. So if someone's gotten their pre-meds um, and they break through and you need to give them something, you can go to a dopamine antagonist. There are toxicities, really extrapyramidal side effects are the big thing. Um, you tend to see that more in younger patients, right? You can, in the young and the very old, really where you see those extraparietal side effects. Um, you're not going to use these for really um, highly metagenic uh, chemotherapy. You know, you wouldn't use uh, Composine and Amend. That's not going to cut it for you, okay? So really, this is a PRN drug. And then they are somewhat sedating, right? If patients use it for a couple of days in a row, they will become tolerant to the sedative effects. Um, but really, remember PRN drug for the dopamine antagonists. Um, the corticosteroids, sorry, this is a little bit out of order. Um, corticosteroids are great in terms of, um, of anti-emetics. You don't really think of them as such. And really, the drug is dexamethasone that's been studied the most. So when you add dexamethasone to one, any one of the other drugs we use, you really get um, increased efficacy of your regimen. All right. Um, so often, for the majority of chemo regimens, you're going to see dexamethasone as part of the anti-emetic regimen. And for exam oral, anyone getting chemotherapy should get dexamethasone as part of their anti-emetic regimen. Right. How it works, we have no idea. Um, in terms of the side effects of, of steroids, really glucose intolerance is one of the key things. So if you have a diabetic, you can still use the drug, you just have them check their sugars a little more frequently, okay? It's not a, a strict contraindication. We've had patients who, you know, we get, we give Decadron as an antibiotic, their sugars may go up to 400 for a couple of days, but we, you know, we, we take care of that and then it's really for a short course, usually just um, as a pre-med with the chemotherapy. The other thing is some patients can get a little, uh, what we call weedy on it, that's a technical term. So they get a little nervous, get, can get agitated, and those folks
As I said, the benzodiazepines we're going to use for that anticipatory nausea and vomiting. Um, it acts in the limbic, thalamic, hypothalamic areas of the CNS. Its effects are mediated through GABA, so we're affecting GABA's binding in these areas. Um, it really, the other thing about lorazepam or Ativan is it does have an anesthetic effect. So the thought is patients get this, um, they may not remember if they did get nauseous, so they'll come back for their next um, round of chemotherapy because you don't want patients skipping out because they're too nauseous to get the chemo. Um, it does cause sedation too, so you know, if someone has anticipatory nausea and vomiting, you say take your dose of Ativan before you come into the clinic. All right, so you don't want them driving themselves. Make sure they have someone driving. All right, so those are the, the drugs mainly. So again, I'm not going to ask you any doses on the exam. All right, so don't, if, if I screwed up and put a dose in somewhere, I'm not going to ask you it, okay? All right, so we said chemo affects rapidly dividing cells, so the GI tract is one of the most rapidly dividing uh, cells in the body. The other organ system is the, um, the bone marrow, and basically when we think about it, um, we're the key, when you think about blood, think about three things, white, red, and platelets, right? So for platelets, if someone has low platelets and they're bleeding, what are you going to do? So if someone's white cells are low, really they're, what's their, their risk? Infection, right? Good job. All right, so really the, this surprisingly wasn't really known until the, the mid-60s. When you look at sort of the history, um, the, the really the, um, the, the function of neutrophils wasn't really discovered until then. And really what this guy Bodie found in this study was that as patients, this was kids with leukemia, excuse me, as their absolute neutrophil count, or their ANC, got below 1,000, the number of infections that they saw really started to rise, all right? So really, neutrophils are your uh, most effective uh, fighters of bacterial infection, right? Have you done infectious disease yet? No. Oh, you have just a lot of them do. Um, so the number of neutrophils that we have in our body is going to vary uh, at different times. And neutrophils are a subset of white blood cells. So to, so to figure out how many neutrophils you have, there's this simple equation. So you take the total white blood cell count, multiply it by the percent of neutrophils and the percent of bands. So remember, bands are just immature neutrophils. And then because you're dealing with percents, you divide by 100 to get an absolute number. Okay? So again, exam world, anyone with an absolute neutrophil count less than 1,000 and they have a fever, they deserve to be in the hospital and get IV antibiotics. Alright, so this is an example of one of our patients who came into the emergency room. Um, so when you get, when you start working um, in hospitals, when you get a CPC, you're going to see you get your white blood cell, um, and that's, this would be 6,400. Um, white blood cells, um, and then you go down and you look at the differential here, and it tells you the percentage of, of neutrophils and bands. So looking right here, looks like the white count in this patient is pretty normal, right? 
So she has a fever, it's like, eh, you don't have a lot of neutrophils, you're probably not infected, maybe it's something viral, maybe it's, you know, something weird. But if you really do the math here, she only had 5% neutrophils and no bands. So her, her A and C was only 320. So the, the thing is, in our patients who have uh, A and C less than 1,000, we've had deaths within 12 hours of, you know, showing up in the emergency room because they have a bad, very negative infection. So really, it's important that you treat those patients um, with antibiotics as soon as possible. And the reason for white panel size is because they are all leukemia cells in there. Alright, so, um, so you really should know how to calculate an absolute neutrophil count. And again, when you get into the, um, the hospital, if you can't remember the formula, if you scroll down far enough, it does a calculation for you. But it's always better for you guys to, to know how to do the calculation. So what can we do? So patients come in with a low neutrophil count. We're going to cover them with antibiotics. But what do we do when we want to give our next cycle of chemotherapy? We know their neutrophil count is going to go low again because it happened the first time. The bone marrow sort of gets beat up with each cycle of chemotherapy. It doesn't like get much better. So is there anything we can do? Of course, the answer is yes. Otherwise, we'll be talking about it. So we give what's called a myeloid growth factor. So these are growth factors that tells the bone marrow to make a lot more neutrophils, push them out. And really the key here is we're trying to increase or decrease how neutropenic the patients get, so how low their neutrophil count gets, and how long their neutrophil count goes low. So if we look at it in graph form, if this is our magic number, which you need to know for the exam, and A and C of 1,000, right? So without growth factor, we give our chemo here, the patient's neutrophil count goes low, stays low for a number of days, and then finally recovers, okay? Typically, this is happening around 7 to 10 days after the patient's gotten their chemotherapy. Alright, if we give a growth factor, what we're trying to do here is, we give the growth factor usually 24 hours after chemotherapy. We're trying to tell the bone marrow, push out as many neutrophils as you can, so even though some might be killed off, the majority are still going to be around, so the patient won't become quite as neutropenic, so they don't go as low, and it's for a much shorter period of time. Alright, does that make sense, how the growth factors work? Alright, so who gets growth factor? Alright, so what are the growth factors? So there are actually four, three drugs available. Can't count. So GCSF, or Flagrastin, the brand name is Nucogen. You may have heard of that, or not. Okay. Uh, Sargramistin uh, works a little bit earlier in hematopoiesis, um, but basically they're both having these neutrophils uh, come out of the marrow. Um, both these drugs are short-acting. They're sub-Q injections. Patients would have to take it for 7 to 10 days, so after chemotherapy. Most patients you'll find don't like giving themselves injections daily for 7 to 10 days, so the drug company picked up on this. and and um, um, produce this long-acting uh, drug, so that's Nublasta. Um, and this growth factor is basically a long-acting GCSF. Single injection lasts for their, um, that seven to ten days. Basically what happens is, as the neutrophils come up, it really metabolizes the drug so it goes away. Um, so, so when do we use the growth factors and how do we decide? No, oh, wait, no, sorry. Um, there are some side effects to the growth factors. 
So remember, these are things we have growth factors in our body. So if we get an infection, we produce GCSF. It tells our, our bone marrow to make more neutrophils, right? We're giving suprapharmacologic doses. So we're giving, you know, 100 times what our body's going to make. So one of the key things that can happen is patients will get fever um, after cytokine. So after giving GCSF, you can see fevers. You can see bone pain. Again, we're telling the marrow to start making all these cells, kicking out all these cells. So patients will complain and they have pain in the lung bones where the marrow's active, okay? So there are their sternum, uh, sometimes their femurs, things like that. And because these cells are turning over, you can see other lab abnormalities. So you have production of some uric acid because whenever cells turn over, there are a few that are dying off, so you get more uric acid. Your LDH goes up, you can see increases in alphos. Okay. Um, the other thing, um, the one other thing, sorry, I forgot to put it in here. Um, you can see splenic rupture with the growth factors too. Um, in fact, you can see, anyone watch TV? You've got a lot of free time now, right, when you're in school, right? <laughs> so you all there are there are ads on TV for Nulasta, and at the, at the end, I think they, they throw in a quick, if you have sickle cell or, or there's a risk for splenic rupture, so that is a small risk. We've luckily not seen it, um, but it can occur, um, so you have to watch out for that. So again, in a patient, um, the situation where you use growth factors, if you're giving chemo where you know it's going to cause a lot of neutropenia, you may give the growth factor up front. Or if patients get chemo, they become neutropenic, ended up in the hospital with a fever, but the next cycle you may want to give the growth factor, okay? And you might ask, why don't you just give it to everyone? What's the big deal? Well, so there are side effects associated with the drug. Also, it costs a lot. A single dose of the pegflograstim costs about 2300 bucks. Insurance is going to be charged about $8,000. So you have to be a little bit good about um, how we use our drugs. All right, so that's the story on white cells. You guys taking um, breaks in between? All right, let's go through. Couple more slides and then we'll take a break. Alright, so the other blood type that question or is question? Oh. Yeah, I have a question. With those three drugs, is it is it important to know the names of them or do you know factors? So the question is, do you need to know the names of those three drugs? So you should know um philograstim and pegphilograstim, those two. So so I'm not gonna ask you so if the, the question is, patient got you know chemo became neutropenic, what could be done on the next cycle to prevent this? I'm not going to say give a growth factor. I'm going to say give Nulasta or give epigen or give Zofran. You know, it would be something like that. So you do need to identify the drug. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So the other blood type that can be affected are the red blood cells. So again, someone comes in with a Gunshot wound, they're, they're pouring out blood, you're going to give a drug, you're going to give a, a red cell transfusion. You're going to give a red cell transfusion. So anemia is a little more complicated than just the chemo affecting the bone marrow. Um, there's probably a lot of other things going on. And, and as you know, um, um, when you are anemic, your, your, your kidneys sense this and they, they make erythropoietin. And that helps um, red cells, um, the growth helps stimulate the growth of red cells. Okay, so we have, okay, my, my cartoon's in the wrong spot, I apologize. I sort of like this one, so 
we'll let you read it. <laughs> now I know what you guys do for fun. Alright, so, um, right, so anemia is a little more complicated in, in our chemo patients, uh, along with a shortened survival because of chemotherapy. There's probably some issues with iron transfer, unless really um, going on in terms of the marrow and other immune um, cytokines that are suppressing the ability of the cell to make the red blood cell, uh, of the body to make the red blood cells. But basically, we do have uh, pharmacologic erythropoietin, all right? So we can give it to our patients, but again, if a patient comes in with a low hemoglobin, these drugs don't work right away. They take four to six weeks to work if they're going to work, all right? So they work at about 40 to 60 percent of the time to raise red blood cells. So if someone's really low, you got to give her a red blood cell transfusion. All right, they are out there. Um, there are um, different algorithms about how to give it. Again, you don't need to know doses or the algorithm. The key thing with if you're giving erythropoietin, you have to check iron stores. Because if patients don't have adequate iron stores, you can't make a red blood cell, right? All right, so that's the key with erythropoietin. Bunch of other um, details about it, but we're not going to go into it. So, EPO, erythropoietin, iron storage, you need to know that. So, unfortunately, I was in the meeting when I was inserting the cartoons, and they're all out of whack. Um, one more thing before we take a break. Um, I told you it works on All right, so the, um, the other complications with chemotherapy, the one complication I want you to know about is called tumor lysis syndrome or tumor lysis. And what that is, if you think about um, a patient with a, a, a lot of uh, disease, so say a lymphoma patient who has a ton of lymph nodes that are really big, and we know lymphoma is really, uh, certain types of lymphoma are very susceptible to chemotherapy. So we give chemotherapy and all those cells, all those cells die. What happens is those cells release all their intracellular contents, right? So you get high potassium, high phosphate, um, and a lot of uric acid being produced. Alright, so what happens when you have high potassium? You get arrhythmias. When you have really high phosphate, it'll bind the calcium in the blood, and then you get really low calcium. Um, so you can have issues with tetanus, tetanus, not tetanus, um, you know what I mean, contraction issues and such. Alright, if you have a lot of uric acid being produced, it can precipitate out into renal tubules, send someone into renal failure. Alright, so this constellation of symptoms, or this constellation of events is called tumor lysis syndrome. So what can we do to prevent tumor lysis syndrome? One key thing, we can alkalize urine, so uric acid is less likely to precipitate out in a certain urine. So we may give them some bicarb, um, we're definitely going to give a lot of fluid, intravenous hydration. You want to maintain at least 100 cc's an hour of urine so patients don't like it too much. Um, we often, you'll see drugs like allopurinol or, or Euloric given to patients. Sorry. These two drugs, these are xanthine oxidase inhibitors. What that means is they stop the production of uric acid. Alright, so if someone comes in who has a history, who's, who has cancer and is on allopurinol, you gotta ask, do you want that for your gout or for tumor lysis, okay? <coughs> so it's got a couple of different reasons why they might be on that type of drug. If patients do have really high uric acids, 
They may be going into some renal failure. We have this drug called raspiracase. It's actually an enzyme that metabolizes uric acid to a more water-soluble form that allows you to excrete um, that water-soluble uh, metabolite. Um, we don't use it sort of haphazardly just because the cost of a dose of raspiracase is somewhere around uh, somewhere around four or five thousand dollars for a single dose, so we have to be a little bit careful about where we use it in patients. All right. And again, you've got a monitor here, and I'll put and uh, monitor electrolytes. So someone with bad tumor lysis, we once had a patient with a really a proliferative lymphoma who started off, she went to her doctor, she, she felt like a pea-sized thing in her breast, and she's like, a, you know, first thought is breast cancer, right, in a woman. She goes to her doctor, at first they were like, oh, maybe it's just a little lymph node, we'll give you some antibiotics. She comes back a week later, it's now the size of an orange, and then he's like, oh, crap. So the joint oncologist comes to see our oncologist. Um, at this point, it's now the size of a grapefruit. All right, so the very fast-growing lymphoma, she, she needed treatment right away. We gave her treatment. She promptly went into the tumor lysis, ended up on twice-daily dialysis, right? Because you got to monitor the, the, um, the electrolytes around the clock. She went into renal failure. Her K was high. She was on dialysis. But once we got her through that period, she was off dialysis. Uh, got better. So you, if, again, if you see patients um, and you hear about tumor lysis and monitoring tumor lysis, this, this is what it's about. All right, so let's take a break, come back uh, by 10 caps, okay? Best. 
during the S phase, and then we have N phase specific cells. Um, one of the things about cell cycle specific drugs, they have some unique toxicities because of how they work. So the S phase specific um, drugs, uh, one of the major toxicities is um, mucositis diarrhea. So really they affect the GI tract a lot. So mucositis, mucositis sorry, is like sloughing uh, the lining uh, of, um, of the GI tract basically. So remember your GI tract runs from your mouth to your anus. So if you have stuff going on in, in your mouth, it's probably all on the GI tract. All right, so that's really the anti-metabolites versus um, the M-phase specific drugs. Those drugs tend to work on microtubules. So remember those cells are pulling apart, those are the microtubules that are doing that work. And when you affect the microtubules, uh, neurotoxicity tends to be one of the major side effects with these drugs, okay? So we should try and get those drugs straight in your head, and what's what, and then everything else is considered cell cycle nonspecific, all right? So this is sort of our conventional chemo or old-time chemotherapy. Now we have some newer stuff where it's, um, our drugs are targeting specific pathways, a specific enzyme in a pathway, uh, or a specific um, growth factor or ligand, so a little more um, targeted, or the other term that's, that you hear a lot about is precision uh, medicine. So really trying to be precise about what you're going after in terms of your target. So we have a bunch of those drugs too. So we'll talk about examples of these types of drugs. Alright, so what the lectures are going to be from now um, until the end are basically classes of drugs. I'm going to pick out a couple of examples of the class of drugs. We're going to go over mechanism. Again, the mechanism, I want you to know the 50,000 foot sort of uh, mechanism of action. There'll be more detail in the slides for your pleasure for later when you want to read about them. Um, all right. And then we'll talk about side effects or any labs that are important when using that drug. All right. So the first class of agents are the alkylating agents. So your fun jeopardy fact is, but the first drug in this class was nitrogen mustard. So it was found in World War I, the Germans used nitrogen mustard gas as, as, a, as a weapon. And it was found that soldiers exposed to the nitrogen mustard gas became lymphopenic. So their lymphocyte counts went down. So what they did is they looked at this agent, they, they turned it into an IV formulation, nitrogen mustard that's used to treat lymphoma, uh, malignancy of lymphocytes, all right? So that's your jeopardy fact, that won't be on the exam. All right, so the two drugs, we're going to talk about our um, cyclophosphamide, or the three drugs, sorry, cyclophosphamide, iphosphamide, and cisplatin. So these all fall under the, the category of alkylating agents. In terms of their mechanism of action, really what I want you to know is this last bullet. They form inter and intrastrand DNA crosslinks. So remember, if you look at this picture, your DNA, for DNA to replicate, it has to unwind. You know, and then it, it copies itself, right? And that's how you get replication. Now, if you stick a drug in between the two strands, so intrastrand crosslinks or interstrand, no wait, interstrand crosslinks and intra along the length of the DNA, when the DNA now tries to unwind to replicate, what's going to happen? It's going to hit this roadblock, so the, the cell can't replicate. So that's how it kills cells. All right. There are some general toxicity with the alkylating agents that applies to all the alkylators. So 
really, these drugs cause bone marrow suppression. So you can see neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, anemia. Again, for the majority of chemo agents, that period of time is about seven to 10 days after the infusion of the drug. So that's when you expect the patient's counts to be sort of at their lowest for the, okay? The other thing, the alkylators all cause a lot of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, anorexia, so GI upset. Um, because these agents aren't all that specific, they can head for um, some of the gonadal tissue, so they can cause sterility, amenorrhea, early menopause in women. So again, you have a young patient who you gotta give chemotherapy to, you gotta think about, do they wanna have children later on in life, okay? So if it's a male, Forgive me, it's a little bit easier, a cup and a magazine, and you get your sample and freeze it away. There's a cost involved with it, so it really isn't all that easy. For women, it's a little more difficult, although there is technology now where you can freeze eggs. In the past, you have to freeze embryos, so you have to have partners and all. Um, so now you can, but it's, it's a matter of getting the right cycle and harvesting the eggs, so it's a little, obviously a little more complicated. Both these things come at a cost also for, uh, for the patient in terms of storage and such, but it's definitely a conversation you have to have with young patients, okay? Um, the other thing is the alkylating agents have been associated with secondary leukemias. 10% or less of the time, patients can, you know, they're cured of their one cancer, but um, usually the time frame is about 8 to 10 years later, they can develop a secondary malignancy. A lot of times it's a leukemia. We've had plenty of patients who have breast cancer, were treated, cured, and now they have a leukemia. You can actually tell that by looking at the genetic profile of the leukemia and what specific um, cytogenetic abnormalities we know that this leukemia is due to the use of an alkylating agent. So it's something um, that you have to consider and talk to your patients about. So these are general toxicities with the drugs. Okay. Um, I'm going to explain now, but it's okay, it's almost over. Um, so the first drug we're going to talk about is cyclophosphamide. This is a drug that's used in oncology a lot, but it's also used in other disciplines, so rheumatology, um, some nephrology. Um, so chemo is chemo, whether it's given by a nephrologist or given by an oncologist, so the side effect profile can uh, happen again. The major mechanism is through this inter and intrastrand DNA cross-linking. Um, some of the pharmacokinetic things that are important, um, really the, the bottom bullet there, that it, this drug is predictably removed by dialysis. So about 50% of the drug is removed by dialysis, so that's important. Oops, sorry. Um, that's important to know, so a patient who is on hemodialysis, so that woman with her bad lymphoma, she got a dose of cytoxin because we knew we gave the cytoxin, dialysis, dialysis would clear it pretty predictably and we could clear the drug because we knew really she wasn't going to clear that drug that well. Um, so that's the key in, in this slide, that's the important uh, thing to take out of this slide. In terms of um, the drug itself, it's actually a prodrug, it's metabolized to two major metabolites, acrolyne and, and this phosphoramide mustard. This is the, the metabolite that goes in and mucks up the DNA, all right, and does that inter and intrastrand cross-links, this phosphoramide mustard. The acrolyne is important, you should notice, because it causes a unique side effect. Um, and really that side effect 
is hemorrhagic cystitis. Um, so hemorrhagic cystitis is when acrolein really loves the bladder epithelium. So this um, a drug is metabolized, this metabolite is formed and is cleared in the urine. So once acrolein hits the bladder, it will attack the epithelium and you get bleeding. Okay? So if it sits in the bladder for a long time, you can get a lot of bleeding and cause what we call hemorrhagic cystitis. So the patients are just sort of peeing out a lot. So you don't want that to happen. Um, so that's one of the unique toxicities to cyclophosphamide. Um, and I think we're going to talk more about it um, with um, sort of the cousin of cyclophosphamide. Um, so that's a unique side effect. The other side effect with, um, or toxicities with cyclophosphamide, delayed nausea and vomiting, again, this is one of the big three. So if you see this on the exam question, they automatically get aloxy or calinozotron, dexamethasone, and a prepotent, right, for a prophylaxis of acute and delayed nausea vomiting. Cyclophosphamide can cause cardioplexicity at really high doses. It causes a cardiac necrosis. You guys are all too young, but you know, about, well, it's gone, it's 20 years now, but there was actually a death over in Dana-Farber of a Boston Globe medical reporter who was getting a transplant and got the incorrect dose of cyclophosphamide. She got four times the dose she was supposed to get. And she died basically of cardiac death because her heart was affected by the cyclophosphamide. It, it was a big deal. It's led to a lot of changes in how we do things in oncology and some of the medication safety stuff that we do now. Um, so cardiac toxicity is big. Probably not for the, it's not for the normal doses. The dose that we use in transplant is really um, where you see the cardiac toxicity. What you're going to see on EKG are early voltage changes. That's which, um, that's the, the the clue that the patient might be having some cardiotoxicity. So if you were to see that, you wouldn't give the dose. The drug is very immunosuppressive. It likes TMP cells, and that's why it's used in these other disciplines. You know, in rheumatology, it's used for lupus um, <coughs> nephritis because um, it will attack those TMP cells. Um, it can cause neutropenia, as with all the um, alkylators and the hemorrhagic cystitis. So again, I'm going to give you a list of where the drugs are used. You do not need to know this for the exam. Okay, let me say that one more time so I don't get the email. You do not need to know where the drugs are used and what disease states. Okay, so the exam questions will say, Mrs. Jones is a patient with um, uh, leukemia who's going from a bone marrow transplant and she's going to get a high dose of toxin. Alright, so I'm not going to ask you what drug would go with what disease, okay? Um, in terms of uh, the next drug is really iphosphamide, which is cousin of cyclophosphamide. Again, this is a drug that needs activation um, before it's really effective. Uh, I neglected to mention with the cyclophosphamide, the activation is through the liver. It's metabolized by the liver. So if someone has decreased liver function and you give this drug, you may not get as good an effect because you really need to metabolize the drug, so you have to take that into consideration. Um, so bifosomide also needs um, hepatic activation. When you look, this is the metabolic pathway, and really what you need to know about bifosomide is it does produce acrolein 
So why is it more important in, um, or it is more important with ifosfamide than with cyclophosphamide, mainly because the doses of ifosfamide that we use are, are probably a lot more than what you see with cytoxin, so you get a lot more acrolein produced, so your risk for hemorrhagic cystitis is increased. Okay. Um, in terms of the kinetics, uh, really the key is that this drug does penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Alright, so a lot of stuff on here, but I want you to know is this drug does penetrate the blood-brain barrier, which leads to a unique side effect with the drug. Okay. So in terms of the adverse reactions and toxicities we see with ifosfamide, because it does cross the blood-brain barrier, you see neurotoxicity. It's going to manifest as, first of all, patients will seem a little more lethargic, they'll get confused, it's still on the continuum. Right? You come in one day, they're a little lethargic, they start getting confused. Um, if you don't catch it and, and recognize it, they can get seizures and frank encephalopathy. Um, the good thing about it is it's usually easily reversible. They can stop the ifosamide. You can actually give methylene blue to reverse it. We won't go into those details, but it's, it will reverse um, as soon as you stop the drug, so that's good. Um, but definitely unique toxicity with ifosamide. The hemorrhagic cystitis is really key, and the second we're going to talk about, other than hydration, what we can do to prevent hemorrhagic cystitis. Neutropenia can occur. Um, rarely you can see some nephrotoxicity with ifosamide in, in terms of acute tubular necrosis. Um, but really I want you to focus on the neurotoxicity and the hemorrhagic cystitis with ifosfamide. So because we use much higher doses of ifosfamide, we almost always, in, in terms of exam world, will always give mesna with the ifosfamide. So mesna is a drug that binds acrolein in the bladder. So it sort of takes it out of um, circulation so it can't attack that bladder epithelium. And then that complex is then um, excreted. Uh, so whenever you see IFOS in exam world, you're always going to give mesna with it. Okay? And in the real world, for the most part, that happens. It's a little bit dose dependent. But so the mesna binds that acrolein, so the acrolein won't cause the hemorrhagic cystitis. Um, because the half-life of mesna is a little bit shorter than the half-life of ifosfamide, you have to give multiple doses. Um, and in terms of uses of ifosfamide, really it's um, lymphoma, sarcomas, uterine um, cancers. Alright, so those are the first two acrylate reagents. You, you sort of get how this is going to work from now on. You good? The next alkylator we're going to talk about is cisplatin. Um, again, we have our inter and intrastrand crosslinks as the main mechanism I want you guys to know. Um, cisplatin has some unique kinetics. So really, the key with cisplatin is kidneys, all right? So if anyone has some renal dysfunction, so creatinine greater than 1.5, you're probably not going to give the drug because the drug has a, a direct toxic effect on the renal tubules, all right, and it's also clear renally. So it's sort of a double whammy. If, if you have someone with bad renal function, you give the drug, the renal function is going to get worse, and you're not going to clear it, so you're going to have more toxicity from it, okay? Um, so it's, excretion is mainly renal, greater than 90% um, through filtration and secretion. 
excretion, so bad creatinine, you're not going to give this drug. In terms of toxicity, so it can cause a nephrotoxicity, so what are we going to do to prevent that? If you have normal renal function going in, lots of hydration, keep things moving through. <coughs> have you guys heard the saying yet, a white kidney is a happy kidney? Okay, that's one to write down for the record books, okay? Uh, so you want to keep things moving through, right? Um, so that decreases your risk of nephrotoxicity. Cisplatin is the poster child for causing nausea and vomiting. It's terrible, it causes a lot of acute and delayed nausea and vomiting. So again, in the exam world, palinositron, dexamethasone, and epreptin to start with. All right, always, always, always. All right, so it's one of the worst drugs in terms of causing nausea and vomiting. Because of its effects on the kidneys, you can get some electrolyte wasting, so you weigh, patients may waste magnesium and potassium, so you do have to monitor their electrolytes. You may have to deplete those electrolytes. So a lot of times you'll give hydration fluid with some electrolytes in it. And then the actual molecule does have a platinum molecule in there that with, when you give the drug via bolus infusions, so look at me for one second and then look away. Right, so when you give a drug via bolus, right, you give it, you get a high peak, and then you clear the drug, right? So those high peaks are associated with ototoxicity. All right, so if you're talking to a patient and all of a sudden you have to scream at them, you might want to get some audiology, see what's going on. It's not usually reversible. So some things you can do, sometimes what happens is you can give drugs over a longer infusion time. So instead of getting that big peak, you get a little bit of a slower peak. So you're seeing things like that on tried. Um, so the ototoxicity is somewhat unique. We actually caused one of our patients to go deaf. Um, patient was actually a dialysis patient um, who needed um, cisplatin and we were like, okay, well the kidneys are gone anyway, so we don't have to worry too much about that. We sort of forgot about the hearing. So the patient was treated with the dialysis, but we didn't take into account that he was getting these high levels and ended up going deaf. So don't do that to your patients. Alright? So in terms of where you use cisplatin, it's used in a lot of solid tumors, so head, neck, lung cancers, bladder cancers. Alright, so this one takes a little, you have to look at this one closer. <coughs> oh, you're a smart class, you got it. Well, people are looking this way. Okay, so the next thing. Next class of drugs are the anti-metabolites. Um, and really these are compounds that um, are replacing or acting on some um, normal uh, function um, in the cell. So it's either blocking um, a metabolite or um, substituting itself for a normal metabolite um, in the system. So ultimately results in malfunction or interruption of normal cellular metabolism inhibition of DNA synthesis, right? So remember, these are the S-phase specific drugs, the anti-metabolites. Um, there are three we're going to talk about, methotrexate, cytarabine, and 5-fluorouracil. Um, in terms of general toxicities, we said myelosuppression, again, for just about all chemo, and then mucositis diarrhea, so the GI side effects with the anti-metabolites. So the first drug is methotrexate. Again, a drug you need to know because 
is, um, I think it's still considered first line in rheumatoid arthritis, it's DMARC, right? Okay, so little old ladies who take this drug with bad renal function and don't drink a lot can run into lots of problems, even though, so. Uh, the way the drug works, it inhibits this enzyme called dihydrofolate reductase. Um, so we skip ahead for a sec. So what happens in your cells, you have folic acid, this FH2, all right? Under the influence of dihydrofolate reductase, you make reduced folates. Reduced folates are then needed to make purines and thymidylate, so that healthier cells uh, make what it needs. Methotrexate blocks this enzyme. You deplete the reduced folates in the cell. All right, so you can't make your purine or your thymidylate. Okay, so that's how the drug works. Um, there are a couple of other uh, important kinetic stuff. This is this drug likes to distribute into third space fluids. So if a patients have pleural um, <coughs> effusion. Um, um, uh, uh, pulmonary, uh, what, what I want to say, like a knee effusion, any kind of third space fluid, what happens is you give this drug, it seeks out that sort of water and stays there, and then slowly leaches back into the systemic circulation, so you get a prolonged exposure to the drug and a lot of toxicity, okay? So the board question is always, someone presents with a, a, a pleural effusion and you need to give a methotrexate, what do you do? Do you hold the drug, do you change to something else? Do you drain the effusion, then give the methotrexate? And that's always the correct answer. Drain the effusion, then give the methotrexate, okay? This is also a drug that can be given intrathecally, which means directly into the CSF. So in general, chemotherapy is going to distribute throughout the body, but there are two sites that are really sanctuary sites where the chemo doesn't penetrate well, with the exception of a couple of drugs. One sanctuary site <coughs> is the CNS. So as a protective mechanism, you don't want toxins getting into your CSF, and chemo is pretty toxic. So really, most chemotherapy, with a few exceptions, does not get into the CNS, all right? And the other sanctuary site are the testes, okay? Um, so patients can sometimes have disease in their CNS, all right? So they come in, you know, all of a sudden they're acting a little funny and they have this new droop in their eye and the bell goes off and say, I gotta look and see if they have cancer in their CNS. So the way to do that is by doing a lumbar puncture. So have you guys seen lumbar punctures? Have you done them, right? So you know, so you take out CSF, you send it off to the lab, you look for those malignant cells. If it comes back positive that you have malignant cells in your CSF, you gotta get chemo into that space. So there are very few drugs you can give intrathecally, and methotrexate is one of those. And we're gonna go through how you do an intrathecal um, administration, okay? So in terms of the kinetics, really key to know that it does distribute into third space fluids. Uh, so you want to keep that in mind. Um, this drug will get into the CNS if you give it um, peripherally. So if you give it into the blood, if you give really high doses, you'll get about 10% into the CNS. So if we're treating CNS lymphoma where we have um, lymphoma cells in the brain tissue, so giving drug into the um, CSF won't help. We need to get good penetration into the brain tissue. 
we have to give high doses of methotrexate and we'll push it in, by giving those really high doses we can push it up into the CNS okay um, so elimination really is mainly renal and I want you to remember kidney with methotrexate so if you see a patient who has an increased serum creatinine, you need to dose adjust your methotrexate. So this is the little old lady in rheumatology who has a serum creatinine of two, is 90 years old, and doesn't drink enough water, and it's 90 degrees outside with 100% humidity. That's the patient who's going to become toxic on methotrexate. All right, so you got to you need to watch for that. Um,
But what I want you to know for the exam, glucagorin, rescue, methotrexate, okay? So other methotrexate toxicity are the toxicities with methotrexate. So we said mucositis, neutropenia, the nephrotoxicity, with, especially with the high dose. You can see some pretty predictable increases in um, liver enzymes, so transaminases. Most of the time, it happens around the time when the patient's getting their IV dose. Then once the dose clears, the, the liver function tests come back to normal. So it's less of an issue for us. If it's in a rheumatology patient, whatever, you probably have to reduce the dose. Let's try and decrease that hepatotoxicity. Um, in terms of uses of methotrexate, um, leukemias, lymphomas, uh, breast cancer, sarcoma is also intrathecal use. Um, another um, antimetabolite is cytarabine or ARC. Again, it goes through multiple phosphorylation st steps, ultimately um, results in um, the halting of DNA elongation. So basically, it blocks DNA from replicating. Really, the key uh, toxicity that I want you to know with cytarabine is neurotoxicity <coughs> with high dose. So again, there are a couple of dose levels with uh, cytarabine, but when you give high dose, you get neurotoxicity, and it's unique for um, cytarabine. It's a cerebellar toxicity. Um, it's seen more commonly in high doses in elderly patients. So again, this drug is clear renally. So if you see some renal dysfunction, you need to dose adjust. Um, because of one of its metabolites uh, that's thought to cause a neurotoxicity, you don't clear it as well um, with reduced renal failure or with reduced renal function. So those patients are at risk for cerebellar toxicity. So what you see is patients can have issues with their gait, um, with um, other cerebellar functions. So what we do in the hospital, patients getting high dose cytarabine, um, we do neuro checks prior to giving a dose. So we do finger to nose, heel to shin, and handwriting. If patients start to have, show symptoms of neurotoxicity, you have to stop the dose. If you continue, the, the toxicity is not always reversible. All right? Um, so you're going to do those neuro, neuro checks. The other unique toxicity with cytarabine is a chemical conjunctivitis. The drug is excreted in the tear fluids. The tears don't have the enzyme needed to, to metabolize the drug and clear the drug, so you get irritation. Um, so patients getting high dose cytarabine are always on eye drops to help you know, clear out the, uh, the drug. So those are the, the really the two unique toxicities with cytarabine. Um, cytarabine is used mainly um, in the liquid tumors, um, lymphoma, and this is another drug that can be given intrathecally. Um, so at this point, we'll talk about intrathecal administration. So again, it's direct administration into the CSF. There are three drugs, <coughs> methotrexate, cytarabine, thiotiba is the third one. We're, we're not specifically going to talk about thiotiba, but you should know it in that it can be given intrathecally. It's an alkylating agent. You're probably not going to see it ever unless you work at Tufts and do a hemoperation. But um, it's really methotrexate and cytarabine are more commonly given. Um, so again, you're usually doing a lumbar puncture to um, give the chemotherapy. So what happens is you take out CSF. So if you take out, say, 5 cc's, 
Um, you know, you have a needle in the patient's back, the CSF is dripping into tubes, you collect your tubes. Once you're done collecting the CSF, you attach a syringe with chemotherapy, and then you push the chemotherapy slowly directly into the CSF. In some patients, they have a difficult time if they've had back surgery, if they have some arthritis, if it's a hard to do um, an LP on them, you might want to get what's called an Amaya Reservoir. That's really like a, an IV directly into, their, uh, into a ventricle. So here's a picture of an Amaya. It's a little reservoir with a line that goes directly into the ventricle. And what you do to access it, this little reservoir, just like a little spongy thing, you stick a needle right in there. You can suck off CSF directly through an Amaya and then give the chemotherapy through the Amaya. So again, patients who have disease in their CNS usually need to be treated twice a week until they clear the, the disease from their CSF and then two beyond that. So it can be a lot of um, injections. So a lot of times a patient with a positive CNS will automatically put an Amaya in. Neurosurgery does it. It's usually on either side of the, of the head. Once the hair grows back, you don't even notice it. It's just a little spongy thing. Um, it actually makes giving it to people much easier because you don't have to really worry about getting your needle in the right place. You go and you tap it, you suck off the CSF, and then you get the chemo. Okay? Um, and so this is just you know, a, a fun, funner picture of an Amaya. All right. Uh, questions on that stuff? All right, the last antimetallic we're going to talk about is 5-4-Uracil or 5-FU. Um, it inhibits, sorry, back to the hypothalamus. So it inhibits this enzyme called thymidylate synthase, um, which is important in um, nucleotide synthesis, really. Um, the key with 5-FU um, is that you use leucoborin with 5-FU, but in this case we're using leucoborin to potentiate the activity of the 5-FU. So we're not rescuing anything, anything we're potenti potentiating the activity, alright? So again, 5-FU, leucoborin, additive activity, not rescue, alright? So you need to remember that. Um, so the way it works, again, 5-FU is metabolized to this metabolite. Oh, I guess I didn't do that. Um, so the 5-FU will bind the thymidylate synthase. This is not a permanent binding, right? So if you don't do anything else, the 5-FU can back off of the thymidylate synthase and the, the thymidylate synthase can do its, do its thing and help the, the cell replicate. When we give leucoborin with the 5-FU, it's sort of um, traps that thymidylic synthase so it can't go on and do what it needs to do. Alright, so that's why you get this additive effect. So often in the GI um, malignancies, you see 5-FU and leucoborin together. In terms of toxicity with 5-FU, it's actually pretty well tolerated. My favorite drug is a resident because you didn't have to memorize when you needed to dose adjust it. So if someone has some Renal dysfunction, some hepatic dysfunction, it's okay to get 5-FU. Um, it's major side effect, you can see some mucositis, diarrhea, has some myelosuppression, but really it's not that great. Um, usually patients do pretty well, and it's pretty well tolerated. It doesn't cause a lot of nausea and vomiting at all. It's really well tolerated. 
It can cause a photosensitivity, so I actually did my residency down in Texas. And so when patients got their 5-FU, when they went out in the Texas sun, you know, we had to tell the guys, wear your Stetson, make sure you had long sleeves. Um, up around here, they can't go to the beach, you know, and you have to have sunscreen and such, because the photosensitivity is like almost getting a sunburn just from being out in the sun. You have this thing called palmar plantar erythrodesthesia. It's really rashes on the palms and soles of your feet. You know, if it's just a, just a slight rash, it's not a big deal, but they can progress to form bullae and actually you can slough off all the skin. It can be very painful, so such that you can't walk. Um, that's not that common. There's something to keep in mind. Um, if the nurses tend to put an IV in the same vein and you keep pushing or giving the drugs in the same vein, you can get some actually sclerosis of the vein and some toxicity um, the patients can complain of. Um, so basically, double nurses use a different vein if they can. The cardiotoxicity is unique, not all that common, less than 10% of the time, but it's a coronary vasospasm. If this happens to your patients, you probably don't ever want to give the drug again to the patients. So we learned this, or we, we experienced this the hard way. So we had a patient was in getting 5-FU, was getting a bolus infusion, had a little bit of chest pain, infusion was stopped, they were admitted to the hospital, they ruled out, they didn't have an MI. So they, were, they come back and they came back the next week to get their 5-FU, we decided to give this infusion thinking, it was something to do with the high peak concentration. So he came in and just paid again, ended up in the CCU with an MI. So we did try to treat him. Okay? So the, the coronary vasospasm is real, it's not that common, but if patients have the symptoms, you don't want to give it again. Um, in terms of use of the 5FU, is really breast, uh, colorectal, head and neck cancers. Um, it's really the GI cancers where you see a lot of 5FU nowadays. Alright, that's it for the anti-metallics. Questions on those? Alright, so now the other, so the other cell cycle specific drugs are the anti-microtubule agents. There are really two classes, the vinca alkaloids and the taxanes. The vincas, there are three drugs and the taxanes too. Remember these are M-phase specific, so they're affecting those microtubules. Um, and the major, well, we'll talk about the major toxicity. So, the vinca alkaloids inhibit polymerization of tubulin. Um, and really don't focus on the side effects with these drugs, most of the mechanism. Um, if you think about the three drugs in general, the way to remember the toxicity profile, remember vincristine has this big C, and it's really its major side effect is CNS side effects, so the, neuro, the neuropathies, okay? Stocking and glove distribution, so fingers and toes, if patient already has an existing neuropathy, it, it will get worse, all right? So you need to ask patients, you know, uh, you're having trouble buttoning your shirt, um, you're having trouble tying your shoes, um, because there's not a good treatment for it, so you do not reversible uh, neuropathy. Um, the other thing with vincristine is it is a vesicant, and what a vesicant is is a drug that if it leaks out of the vein causes tissue necrosis. All right. So there's a special way we give vesicants in a clinic. Basically, nurses will put an IV in, make sure there's good blood return. So that tells her that for him that the excuse me, the needle's in the correct place. 
that's in the bank. You draw back, make sure you have blood return, then you give some of the drug, then you stop, check blood return again, make sure it's still there, and then give the rest of the drug. So, so it goes back and forth. Um, or if someone has a central line, so if the IV goes into a large vessel, again, make sure there's good blood return, then you can just sort of give it um, as a bolus. Um, so vesicants are important because if it does leak up, so say something happens and the patient says they're starting to have pain, whatever, you have to stop the infusion, you get as much drug out of the area as possible, and then you do symptomatic treatment. Um, these drugs are all free clear through the biliary system, so bilirubins are elevated, you need to dose adjust. Okay. So vincristine has the big C, is CNS toxicity. The other end of the spectrum is vinblastine, has a big B, so bone marrow suppression is its biggest side effect. So it causes myelosuppression. suppression. has relatively little neuropathy, um, but really bone marrow suppression is, is a big thing. It, it is also a vesicant, clear through the biliary system. And then vinarel being is sort of like an in-between thing. It has a little bit of both in terms of toxicity. Um, so if you remember the big C and the big B, all right, you'll be able to tell these drugs apart. See how easy this is? Good, you laughed. All right, so in terms of um, uses, uh, they're listed there for you. So vincristine is more of a liquid thing, um, and blastine is more of a solid thing, and vinarelline is solid too. All right, so the other antimicrotubule agents are paclitaxel and docetaxel, or the taxanes. They work by stabilizing, stabilizing the microtubules once they form, so they form and then they're sort of stuck there. Um, the big toxicity with these drugs, again, is the peripheral <coughs> neuropathy with cumulative doses. So the more you give, the more likely there is a neuropathy, so you've got to ask the patients. I mean, if they're having it, you have to decrease the dose or switch to another drug. Um, both these drugs are, come from natural sources, um, and you don't need to know this for the exam, but the paclitaxel comes from the bark of a tree, docetaxel from um, the needles of a tree. Um, because they are natural, natural products, they are these huge molecules that don't go, aren't water soluble, don't go into solution well. So they're formulated with these things, uh, like polyethylene glycol, tweens, noxious substances that when you inject into patients, they tend to have re, um, reactions to them. So hypersensitivity reactions can occur. Um, so we do a lot of pre-medding with, um, with these drugs. Um, these drugs both are cleared through the biliary system. So if the bilirubin is elevated, you need to dose adjust. Really for the example, I want you to know about paclitaxel. Um, its unique toxicities has a mild suppression. The hypersensitivity reactions with infusions it can cause cardiotoxicity. And really, what we see with paclitaxel it can cause bradyarrhythmias. Um, most of the time, these are not clinically um, significant. Uh, it was seen in the early studies. You know, when you're first giving a drug to a patient in the phase one trial. You're not really sure what's happening, so you may have a patient hooked up to telemetry to see what's going on. So you can see bradycardia with the paclitaxel. Again, we still do the monitoring. Um, it's rare to have to stop the drug because of cardiac disease. Um, you have the neurotoxicity, so the stocking and glove distribution. Um, you can have arthralgias, um, neuralgias, uh, sorry, arthralgias.
patients, um, they've tried lots of things. There used to be, um, at one point, people thought glutamine helped with this. So there was like a run. You can go to a GNC store and find any glutamine anywhere. Patients were just buying it up. I think that fad has sort of um, gone away. Um, you can see some hepatotoxicity really uh, increases in transaminases that can occur. You need to dose suggest if that does happen. Um, usually it's most often reversible. And then alopecia, um, so I haven't really talked about alopecia, but the other drugs certainly can occur with other drugs. I threw it in here because paclitaxel is one of the main drugs used in the treatment of breast cancer. Um, so it's really key um, for younger patients, you know, younger women, or even older women, when they get the diagnosis and you have to use this drug, they're going to lose their hair. Usually alopecia is going to occur somewhere around 14 or so days after the chemotherapy. Um, so you know, this, you get the chemo and you sort of think it's going to happen right away, but then it happens a little bit um, afterwards. So again, we have these things called hair prosthesis, right? So a wave the patients get often. Um, so it is a big deal uh, for, for patients, and I threw it in just so I could really to talk about it. Um, in terms of uses for paclitaxel, it's really sort of a solid tumor type drug, so breast cancer and lung cancer, bladder, head and neck. Um, you see it used a lot in these cancers. Um, I'm not going to, well, I can talk about this, but no. This is not going to be on the exam, the docetaxel, okay, so just make a little note for you guys. Um, again, uh, cousin of paclitaxel, but one unique thing about it is it does have this uh, fluid retention that can occur with it. Um, we use dexamethasone to prevent it. I don't think anyone really knows the mechanism of why that can occur. Um, but in terms of other toxicity, it's pretty similar uh, to paclitaxel. Um, it's used in a variety of solid uh, tumors. All right, so I think we're going to stop there for, for today. Um, next week we'll go through uh, the rest of the stuff. Do you have any questions for right now? Get a sense of how this is going to go? It's very easy, no problems, right?